0: Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Marcus Hippie. In the next half an hour, how Kate Reed reinvented a croissant and launched one of the world's most talked about bakeries called Loon.
1: There was three days worth of dozens of processes beyond making the dough, like laminating the pastry, shaping it, cutting it, proving it, baking it, and I had no idea how to do any of it.
0: Also ahead, we are in Toronto to hear from the founders of a very clever new pancake mix brand.
2: We've kind of left it as a blank slate for you to be able to kind of do whatever you'd like with it, whether that's add toppings or add different kinds of flavours to it.
0: All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too, ahead in this episode off The Menu. From a career in F1 aerodynamics to running one of the world's best croissants-only bakeries... That is quite a career path, revealing how you can transfer skills from one profession to another, sometimes with astonishing results. Kate Reed worked in the world of F1, but after becoming disillusioned with engineering, she decided to shift her focus on pastries. As a result, she launched the croissantery Loon in Melbourne, and since 2012 it has received a global cult following, many saying its croissants are the best in the world. Kate has just released her debut book, Lune, Croissants All Day, All Night. And she joined me in the studio to talk about what made the bakery such a success and how she invented what's being called the world's best croissant through reverse engineering.
1: The reason that I got into motorsport was through, um, as a child, I would watch F1 with my dad and absolutely fell in love with it. It became this ritual of ours every second Sunday night you know, it's Australia, so we would stay up late because they're on in the middle of the night and it's winter. And we'd put on the heater and make tea and toast. And it was just a father-daughter thing that we bonded over. And then in 1996, the Grand Prix moved from Adelaide to Melbourne, which is the city that I live in. And dad took me along. And it was a transcendental moment that changed the course of probably my life, where I realised that it was the industry that I wanted to work in. So I focused all my studies during high school and university to getting into Formula One. That meant studying aerospace engineering at a university in Melbourne. And then a year out of university, I was offered a job as an aerodynamicist with the Williams F1 team, which when you... Imagine a job when you are 13 years old and especially a job that you can't go and do a week of work experience in, you know, when you're at high school and they send you off to like a lawyer's office for a week to do photocopying. So when you're 13 and you can't do work experience, you start to build a fairly vivid picture of what you think your day-to-day life as an engineer in F1 would look like. And it's only when you discover the reality doesn't match that expectation, which is what happened to me, that um, I developed, which was undiagnosed at the time, depression, because I found myself, I'm a very focused person, Mm -hmm. and I found myself in a situation that didn't totally fulfill me, or fulfill me at all, certainly not the way in which I had expected it to, and the depression turned into an eating disorder. So it's kind of ironic, and I think people are normally surprised when they hear this, but... It does sound logical once you think about it. When you have an eating disorder, all you can think about is food. And your mind doesn't go to, like, lettuce leaves. It goes to the thing that you crave the most. And I absolutely love baked goods. So rather than eating baked goods... Um, the only thing that really made me happy during sort of the, the lower times in my life working as an engineer, I'd come home from work, I'd plan something elaborate to bake at home and I'd live vicariously through the preparation of ingredients and I mean baking's pretty magical, like the raw ingredients alone, you wouldn't you wouldn't like snack on a bag of flour. But you know, when you bring flour and sugar and eggs and milk and everything together, you can create this thing that's so much bigger than the sum of its parts and it's delicious and it fills your kitchen with these beautiful smells. And, you know, baking is very exacting. So mm-hmm. it requires a technical mind. So I discovered this love of baking. And I also discovered that when I'd take it into the office the next day, you'd see people eat it and it would just bring these moments of joy. So I think I got to the point where I wasn't well enough to live in the UK anymore. And mm-hmm. that decision was taken out of my hands. My boyfriend at the time called my parents and said, I'm really worried about Kate. I can't do any more. So my dad hopped on a plane, packed up my life and flew me back to Australia. And then my recovery began, but also maybe a discovery of a new passion, which was baking. So that's like, long story short, sorry. (laughs) Essentially, um, it was through dissatisfaction in my first career, an eating disorder, and then discovering baking.
0: Tell me about what you did after that when you decided to go into baking. What were the first step or the most significant steps to help you get where you are today?
1: So most significant steps. First of all, I was scared to immediately leap back into training for something new because I'd gone through that once and had discovered that I didn't love it. So I just got a job working in a bakery on the counter. Absolutely loved it. The only thing that I I was... I guess disappointed about was that I wasn't making the things that we were selling, and that was enough of a sign to me that it was worth pursuing. Mm. So I got a job at a beautiful little local cafe. The woman who owned it hired me to just bake the cakes and biscuits for the counter, and I, it was probably where I'd found myself most fulfilled and happy in my career to date. Anyway, I, I was getting a little bit bored of baking relatively simple things and I'd started to research more technical baking and pastry and obviously um, French patisserie is one of the most technical and complicated in the world. So my engineering brain immediately wanted to delve into that. I bought myself a book called Paris Patisseries and it featured some of Paris's most famous patisseries and boulangeries. And then it had a recipe from each one. So I got home from work one day. It had arrived in the mail, sitting on the lounge room floor, and I flicked it open. And there was this incredible double-page spread that had been taken at a boulangerie in Paris called Du Panne And it was this beautiful photo of Panna au chocolat on the counter. And it was so, like, you could just eat the page. I was so hypnotised by it that I closed the book walked to the nearest travel agent and booked myself a ticket to Paris. (laughs) I'm pretty impulsive. I mean, I think that's probably coming across by now. But um, when I went in the next day to work, the couple who I worked for decided that they'd come to Paris with me. So a couple of months later, we are all on the plane to Paris. On the last day in the city, I decided that I wanted to go and visit the boulangerie that had made me book the ticket. Mm -hmm. So, you know, wandered over to the 10th arrondissement and discovered this, like, perfect example of a Parisian patisserie, um, belle époque style, you know, elaborate and ornate and beautifully restored. But even more impressive when you got into the shop was the counter, you know, just adorned with every type of viennoiserie you could imagine. So, you know, beautiful apple turnovers and, and different flavours of escargos and like there were the pain au chocolat that had been in the photo. And I got chatting to the vendeurs and explained to her in broken French the story about booking the ticket because of seeing the photo of her boulangerie. Or and she said, Well, actually, I'm gonna go get the owner, he speaks English. I told him the story, he gave me a whole bunch of pastries, and I went and sat on the steps of Montmartre. Like I feel like I was like playing <laughs> out the movie in my head, you know, sitting there nibbling on all these beautiful pastries. And um, the next day down in the Dordogne, in the internet room of the hotel, I hadn't been able to stop thinking about this boulangerie. So I emailed the owner to thank him for the pastries. And I said, oh, I don't suppose you'd ever consider taking me as an apprentice. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, normally no, because we're very small. Nobody speaks French here and you have no experience. But for some reason, I can see the same passion and motivation in you that was in me when I started. So yes, when would you like to start? So I ended up getting to have this magical period of time that – one of Paris's best boulangeries, learning the art of croissant.
0: And then you moved back to Australia and decided to launch your business. And, well, tell me in your own words, what was it like when you tried to launch your business and you realised that maybe you didn't remember everything you were supposed to learn in Paris?
1: Well, I mean, I'd spent all my life savings and I'd quit my job. I'd rented out a tiny little shop and it had a mezzanine level above it. So I was sleeping above the bakery. My job in Paris had been making the croissant dough. So I've made my croissant dough and it's tipped out on the bench in front of me. And I just have this memory of this moment where I'm like, oh my God, I've got no idea what to do next. Like there was three days worth of dozens of processes beyond making the dough, like laminating the pastry, shaping it, cutting it, proving it, baking it. And I had no idea how to do any of it. And there was this moment where I was like, okay, I've got this shop, I've spent all my money, I've quit my job. You know, you can't turn back now. And so I kind of turned to my engineering problem-solving mind and I thought, well, I can't go back to school and learn this or do an apprenticeship because I'm too far deep now in into this, into this venture. So I thought, well, if I can imagine what the perfect croissant at the end would look like to me, maybe I can work backwards and reverse engineer it. So literally taking on that like critical analysis of every step along the way and looking at the different variables. I worked backwards and over a period of three
0: months. And how soon did you realise that you had created something quite exceptional?
1: I don't ever think, like in that in those early times, I would, I mean, I thought it was absolutely delicious. And I was like, well, I'm very happy with this product. But I don't think I ever acknowledged that it was exceptional. It, it, I just got it to the point where I was happy to start sending out samples to places and say, so initially I was doing wholesale supply to espresso bars. I didn't have a little customer facing bakery. And I got to the point where I was like, okay, if I keep tweaking this recipe, I might just spend the rest of my life trying to perfect it. At some point I've got to start making money. So it was more, I think it's I'm happy enough to have my name attached to this product. I'm going to put it out there in the market. And that was maybe a three month period between starting the testing and and being happy with something to go out to market.
0: And the word started to spread. What do you think were the biggest milestones in gaining that reputation?
1: Honestly, you have to have a product that stands up to scrutiny, but... I do think that my unusual background in Formula One attracted the media at first. So there was a bit of notoriety behind me and this big career change that I made, and it was enough to attract media attention. At the same time, I was also getting the product out there in cafes. And, you know, I would show up every morning in my little Renault Clio (laughs) with crates of pastries in the back, and there was already a line of people waiting before the espresso bars had opened and I discovered that they were waiting for me to show up with the pastries. Like this one cafe I went to to deliver, by the time I'd get there, they'd have a stack of 40 bags with people's like lunch orders written on them and the pastries wouldn't even make it to the counter because they'd been purchased like before before I'd even shown up. So it was wild how quickly the word spread. So it kind of got to the point where I was – Working ninety to one hundred hours a week by myself, and the business was very successful from a like from an outsider's standpoint, but it wasn't making any money. Mm-hmm. And at some point, for it to be long standing and viable, you've got to make money. So I had a bit of an about turn, and I decided that I wanted to turn the business into a customer facing bakery because I really wanted to see people enjoying eating the pastries as well. And um, I contacted my brother, who has worked in hospitality his whole life. And he was on a motorbike trip up the east coast of Australia. And I said, oh, Cam, I've decided that I want to turn Loon into a little customer-facing bakery, but I've got no front-of-house experience. Will you come and help me? And like literally through the phone, I heard his eyes roll. And he was like, yeah, cool. I'll go help my sister with her stupid little bakery. Mm -hmm. But like two weeks in, the lines were starting earlier and getting longer. And I think it was like, oh, I think we might be onto something here. So to this day, and that was nearly nine years ago, to this day, um, we're still business partners in the business working together side by side.
0: Amazing. And now you have five sites in in Australia. And now the book is out as well. And I think it's interesting that it's, it's quite a few times when you emphasize that your approach is quite unorthodox. Yeah. How do you think... The French baker is, for example, where you worked before. How do they feel about the way you have created your your croissants now?
1: I, like Nobody's asked me that, but I am pretty sure that there will be French bakers out there that really do turn their nose up at my recipe because, you know... I- The recipe is classic for a reason, but the classic croissant recipe was meant for bakeries with commercial bakery equipment, not for the home chef. And every other recipe that's been penned for the home baker just teaches people the classic recipe. But, like, nobody has a laminator at home or a chilled bench top or a a proper, like, retard approver where you can control all the variables. And I think the hardest thing is just rolling out the pastry with a rolling pin. Mm. So when we do it in the bakery, the laminator is the piece of equipment that does that. And it very gently like, brings down the thickness of the dough. But at home, when we use a rolling pin, it imparts so much strength into the dough that it wants to spring back. And it's very hard to achieve like three millimetre thick pastry. So I wanted to rewrite the recipe to make it achievable for the home baker but still make no bones about it. Like, it's a three-day process that's very hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Could you shed a bit more light on how you make some of the croissants you're most famous for?
1: So, up until 2018, I was nominally responsible for creating all the new flavours. And I think in creating new flavours, I very much lean on nostalgia. So, you know, I, I spoke about loving baked goods. So when I'd think of a new flavour, I might go take a memory back to childhood, like, for example you know, a favourite birthday cake or a carrot cake or or like my favourite pizza flavour. And then you take those flavours and you test them with croissant pastry. And, I mean, we've done many examples where we have an idea and you taste it and suddenly the flavours totally overpower the croissant and we know that it won't work. Everything that ends up on the counter has to hero croissant pastry. But, like, I love – for me, our product philosophy at Loon is – is it nostalgic and is it fun? And like, you know, when you see it on the counter as a customer, does it make you sort of giggle and think like, oh, that's amazing, I can't believe they put that in a croissant and yet engenders some sort of childhood nostalgia. I think that's pretty special.
0: Can you give us some examples of some of the funniest things you've done in that sense? You know, you talk about that importance of having a bit of fun.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, like one of the most decadent ones that we've done is, you know, a wagon wheel. So we took a pan au chocolat, and we played with the idea of a twice-baked croissant, which prior to Loon, like the only twice-baked croissant that was out there was the classic almond croissant. But then we started to play around with different fillings and nut meals, and the idea being cutting a day-old croissant in half, filling it with something and baking it again, so that being the twice-baked. So we took a twice-baked pain au chocolat and we made a, like a shortbread biscuit frangipan, a house-made raspberry jam, house-made marshmallow, and then shards of chocolate, and took all the components of a wagon wheel and built it inside a twice-baked pan de chocolat. And let me tell you, it is so much better than the original wagon wheel. And it's like it's surprise and delight when you bite into it. You don't expect to have that feeling and thought about a wagon wheel or that would even work in croissant pastry, but it does. I mean, like also, like recently on the menu, we've had the pepperoni pizza escargot. And, you know, like pepperoni pizza is – is such a – like, do you really mess with that? Like, do you take it off proper pizza dough and the Napoli sauce and, like, do you mess with that as a a formula and a ratio? But if you balance it all correctly – the the croissant pastry just becomes the carbohydrate element, and then like you can almost elevate the experience of a pepperoni pizza.
0: Now your book, Lou and Croissants, all day, all night is out now, and it's spreading the word of this wonderful business as well. Okay, just finally, what kind of plans do you have for the future? I would imagine the business is growing. Do you have any plans to expand to other parts of Australia, maybe or go international even?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So our plan for the next two years, uh, we've secured our marquee site in Sydney. We actually hoped to open in Sydney first, but due to the pandemic, the lease that we'd signed fell through, and then an opportunity came up in Brisbane. So we've now found another site in Sydney, and we're currently working with our architects and the developers to finalise the plans for that. That'll be open by this time next year. And we've secured a second site in Sydney as well, which will be six months after the first one. And then I think it'll be an assessment stage where I know myself and my two business partners, we all have dreams of taking the business overseas. I certainly don't feel like Loon's met its ceiling. You're looking at me like, tell me it's going to be London.
0: (laughs) I was just going to ask where that would be first.
1: Well, like I have a very personal connection with London, obviously living here for a few years when I worked in Formula One. And mine and my brother's, our mum is from Northern Ireland. So we spent a lot of our childhood holidaying here and visiting family. I think London is the perfect environment for pastry. Like, you know, it's typically cooler. There's lovely, like when the weather's not that nice, people look for comfort. So for me, I would absolutely love to open Loon in London, but then I can also see it being incredibly popular in markets like Tokyo and Singapore. Hopefully at the point where we realise that we can take the brand overseas, like maybe literally the world is our oyster. So fingers crossed that Loon will be in all corners
0: of the world. Kate Reid there and her book Loon Croissants All Day, All Night is out now. We turn our attention to breakfast next here on the show and to that start of the day classic, The Pancake. In Toronto, a trio of entrepreneurs, Kaylee Derubis, Tori Ferguson and Adrian Derrick, have launched a new pancake mix brand called Stacks. Monaco's correspondent in the city, Thomas Lewis, spoke to them and began by asking Kaylee, who is the co-founder and CEO, about where the idea for a boutique make-at-home pancake mix came from.
2: Stacks is actually uh, an acronym. Uh, It stands for Stepping Towards Active Changes Um, and that name was very purposeful um, and also appropriate because stacks also uh, signifies a stack of pancakes. So um, the idea really came from wanting to do something greater than ourselves with something very very simple. So um, you know, we all love pancakes. I think most people that we come into contact with love pancakes, but uh, the idea itself came from a very simple conversation um, and the desire to just do more. Uh, we were founded in the midst of the pandemic and um, this just felt it felt like the perfect opportunity to um, connect with people around the world in an otherwise really uncertain time.
0: And the doing more aspect of, of Stacks, beyond the pancakes, I suppose, what does what the doing more look like what does that entail
2: yeah so um for us we uh, donate a portion of every single box that we sell to support organizations who are devoted to food, youth, and art in some way. So food, youth, and art are our predominant pillars, and those are all things um, that we've chosen to kind of explore just based on um, the fact that we all feel very connected to all of those elements. Um, and for us, change, you know, a lot of people, I think, change, see change as something that has to be this big, extravagant ordeal, but it actually doesn't. And Uh, That's what we hope to establish with Stacks is that change is something that can be very simple. And oftentimes when you do it with more than one person, it becomes that much more impactful. So for us, it's as simple as selling a box of pancakes that are delicious, but then being able to take a portion of those proceeds and put it right back into our communities.
0: The perfect fluffy breakfast pancake, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, how do you go go about sort of (laughs) bringing something new to that?
2: We always say there's there's two stories really to why we chose pancakes in the first place. Um, The first one was during a conversation uh, we were having, it was that, you know, pancakes were really something that were regarded as almost stale in a way. If you think about box pancakes, you think about the obvious Bisquick, Aunt Jemima, kind of these old dated, really large corporations who have the market. And unfortunately, you know, without... Any disrespect to their recipes, they're not always the most quality of pancakes. Um, But what we found interesting is that in the same space, companies that were focused on like keto driven or gluten free pancakes were doing something really cool with branding, um, with recipes, and they were just putting so much more thought into their actual product. And we thought, why can't You know, simple, normal pancakes have this same attention. What if we just made, took something, didn't rewrite the wheel, um, made it a couple of tweaks to make it that much more better, and then followed the same approach of standing out from a marketing perspective. And so that we could kind of dominate just the regular market. Um, And so pancakes seemed like the uh, easiest and most simplest way to do this. Um, And we saw an opportunity to do something so much greater with something so simple, full well knowing that almost everyone we've talked to loves pancakes. (laughs) So it's really hard to look at our product and, you know, not be at least curious about it to start just because it's something that is um, widely recognized in every country around the world, whether you have, you know, thin pancakes, thick pancakes, they come in different shapes and sizes, but ultimately they're a delicious breakfast food. I'll let Tori weigh in, but um, it was again, very intentional. So I am uh, lactose intolerant, unfortunately. So um, Tori is a, a she has a bake, a background in baking she's very good when it comes to baking and recipe development um and previous to us even starting this idea of stacks um you know she used to make me really delicious uh, pancake mix for myself and Adrian in a bag and she would always just say okay all you have to do is add you know, two eggs, you can use almond milk, you can do all of these things, you can't mess it up, like it's foolproof. If you just like listen to what I'm saying, you will make beautiful pancakes. So I thought that was cool, because in a lot of big box pancakes, what you find is milk powder ingredients that you can't take away. Whereas with our pancakes, they're so simple and bared down that the purpose is so that you can add what you feel is necessary for your diet and for yourself. So our pancakes, our original mix, can be made without uh, dairy can be made without eggs Um, and we've kind of left it as a blank slate for you to be able to kind of do whatever you'd like with it whether that's add toppings or add different kinds of flavors to it um we definitely didn't want to discriminate when it came to um options
3: yeah i um i found that when i was kind of you know embarking on this um pancake journey um i was doing my research and a lot of the pancake recipes that i found you know called for buttermilk or strange ingredients that you don't necessarily have in your pantry you go out and buy a carton of buttermilk and then it just sits in your fridge and goes bad before you find another purpose for it so we really wanted to keep it very simple and make sure that you could make them with the ingredients that you already had in your pantry that um those ingredients suited your diet and just make it really easy you know like Kaylee said, we didn't reinvent the wheel. They're very delicious, fluffy, foolproof pancakes that you can be really proud of making. You know, sometimes um, when Kaylee and Adrian were kind of making their pancakes at first, um, there was a bit of trial and error because, um, you know, pancakes can be difficult at times. Your stove is very different. Um, we have some journals um, alluding to that on our on our website about how to make the perfect sack. Um, so we really wanted to simplify it and, you know, show people that pancakes don't necessarily have to be hard if, um, they have experienced troubles with making pancakes before, you know, sometimes they come out very fluffy or flat (laughs) and, um, you know, they can burn before they cook all the way in Mm -hmm. the inside. So we just kind of really wanted to streamline that process and pretty proud to say that we think we've, we've gotten there. I can't give away the, uh, the proprietor's blend of our ingredients, but, um, you know, if you, uh if you follow
2: yeah, yeah if you follow our instructions basically you're going to be rewarded with a fluffy pancake just the right amount of crisp around the edges we like to say there's a bit of a science behind them, um, but we don't give away uh, yeah. our secret. What I will say is is patience goes a really long way <laughs> when you're making pancakes, taking your time. Um, as Tori mentioned, we've got some great journals online that kind of take people through what is so simple, but a lot of people don't know that you're not supposed to flip a pancake until bubbles form within the center. But that also allows for the pancake to cook in a very specific manner where it's cooking it on the outside of the pancake and allowing you to develop that really fluffy center um, at the same time.
0: I mean, I think everything now is needs to be a little more thought-provoking and in terms of the merchandising of grocery stores it's very straightforward so our intention was to create a box that stood out met something uh, had a sense of mornings and waking up and feeling good and motivation so on the top of the box says good morning just as a subtle reminder to let you know that we're present and we want you to be present and it's only only pancake, excuse me, only pancake mix. It's nothing special. It's not a rocket science. It's not gonna reward you in a, a bad way. It's only gonna be a thought provoking experience that's gonna fulfill you or the people that you're sharing it with. Uh,
2: we really wanted our box to spark joy and um, the colors were incredibly intentional. We spent a lot of time um, going through different color palettes, <laughs> thinking about what made most sense and when we all saw this this orange color it was something that we all agreed on this is something that makes us smile um it makes us happy and it's you know a decision that I think was really smart and one that was made last minute but um you know everyone we meet does comment on the box right away we love your box we love your design um and you know full credit goes to to Adrian for this beautiful creation but um it, it was incredibly purposeful, so that when you do start your morning and you grab something in your pantry, not only do you see it, but you, you begin your sense. Just you begin your day with a greater sense of pleasure. I think uh, from something so simple yeah. as, as color.
0: Kaylee De Tori Ferguson, and Adrian Derrick there in discussion with Monocles Thomas Lewis. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously, you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand-new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineers were David Stevens, Tamsin Howard and Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation here is Simeon Mobile Disco with Audacity of Huge. Thanks for listening, and until next week. Huge. Huge.